0: We are back again with the Looking Glass Forum and we are unveiling the occult design that works against the civil liberties, Protestant freedoms established and protected by this constitutional republic here in America. Remember, the lies are many, but the truth is one. part two of the episode How the Vatican Created Islam and of course the Vatican itself wasn't officially created until I think it was 1922 I'll have to go back and check uh, in that name but we understand the Vatican to be the the Roman Catholic power surrounding the, the papacy so that's be the central part of roman christianity but all the power and authority and ecclesiastical temporal authority if you will spiritual and 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 actually temporal power on earth have been tied up into the the hands of the pope so the pope can make grand distinction within doctrine and decide whether someone is canonized into heaven or cast into hell after they're dead can use his pretended ministry to absolve sins and then he gives this authority to all of his priests who we call father and that's what the word papacy means it means the 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 father the pope and they call him holy father so this individual Who's elected by the Curia, or really the old College of Cardinals, is really the uh, the old Senate of Rome, and that election, that democratic pick of a pope, then seats the Vicar of Christ, who is the the highest bishop of the earth. All the other bishops of the earth have to submit and kiss the ring of the pope, and and whatever his his he decides, everyone has to go with It's a, it's a spiritual dictatorship, if you will, and that power was greatly diminished by Napoleon in 1799, but of course by uh, 1933, the papacy was receiving through Benito Mussolini and through others, would receive his temporal power back as, a, as a, an authority, as the king of the Vatican city state and the ruler of Rome and the head of Roman Christian religion. It's really, not, it's really different than, um, than Protestant religion. The, uh, the Roman church considers us to have a paper pope. In other words, instead of a leading man, a, a living man who breathes of flesh and blood, to rule over us, we don't have an individual person, but our authority stops with the word of God in the bible so they try to find a controversy there they try to unwind the authenticity and the authority of the bible and they do it by creating other translations you have the niv the new world translation and dewey Rheims, which is a completely perverse book and it's different than the king james version which used the the old greek translations and translated them into English directly without any subversion or manipulation of the details within the word of God in order to propagate a certain particular doctrinal issue or whatever. Within the Dewey Rheims, the Catholic Bible, it has Mary depicted in the Proto-Evangelicon, which is the very beginning introduction of the gospel. We see that Mary is the one who crushes the head of the serpent and and plays this role as a mediatrix and um and a part of the divinity and a part and she plays a role in the salvation of mankind and they develop prayers and incantations directed towards mary which they consider to be beneficial so that you would pray to mary now and at the hour of our death for instance i mean she plays a part in the godhood so not only is Jesus Christ, the son of God, and in Catholicism, Mary is the mother of God, and there's this convoluted sense that they're bringing back Samarimis or uh, Ostara. They're bringing back one of the goddesses of ancient mythology and making that deity, that female deity, using the old statues and the old idols of Rome that go back to Babylon when they had the queen of heaven and they worshiped her. And so Mary takes the place of this older iconic deity within pagan religio-cultic symbolism. So, you know, Rome had always had these pictures of of, of these statues and idols of different female deities and idols around Rome. The Romans would pray to these idols. Diana, Zeus always had his consort, his female consort goddess within uh, mythology. So these stone idols would now be superimposed with this identity of Mary. So now Mary is this figure, and it's holy and devout to pray to her. It's pious to pray to Mary. That's what Catholicism is all about. And Of course, we see that in Islam as well. The is, in Islam, you know, women don't play a very important part, except for Mary. It's highly exalted. I think eight different times within the Quran and the surahs and different scriptures of the uh, of Islam, Mary is raised to the status uh, as being a most important figure within religion, even maybe more important t- than Jesus Christ within Islam. So you have Muhammad, and then you have Mary, who's a hugely important part within Islam, and then you have Jesus as, as a kind of a minor prophet who doesn't play an important part. So you can see that the original precursor ideology, the original foundation of knowledge that led to the writing of the Quran and the writing of uh, Muhammad's doctrines were coming from people who could read and write. Apparently, uh, Muhammad was uh, illiterate. And it was coming from people who understood Mary to be a significant individual within religion. So it really goes back to our understanding that the old pagan system of syncretism, of heathen religion, had always been there and instituted within Rome. And they cobbled together astrotheology and the different forms of pagan ritual. And they cobbled it together to unite it with These ideas of Christianity didn't have idols or rituals, but they just focused on the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and the life-changing power that that brings into an individual's life. Obviously, rituals and annual incantations and burning candles and saying repetitive prayers over and over and over again will not give you any power with God. You just need to read the Bible and to understand that, that the Lord is looking for an honest relationship from the heart not for religious works. So we have to go back to the heart of Islam. This is 610, 620 AD, 7th century. And we have to understand what was happening at the time of when Muhammad would rise up and Islam would begin to come onto the scene. And it was instantly imbued with power, with military strength, with financing, with literature, um, and the support of the Augustinian monks in the region, like we were discussing in the previous part one. Khadija was Muhammad's wife. I think he was 21 and she was 40, according to history. And she was a Roman Catholic, almost like a nun. She lived in a monastery. She had great wealth. And It was through this relationship that Muhammad would tacitly create uh, an Arabic form of Roman Catholicism with uh, a central city in Mecca, a, a scriptural, a doctrinal move towards religious war which is the same thing that uh, the Roman Catholics would do. They would have an, an empire-building strategy of going to war with other Christian churches or other nations that didn't accept their particular form of religion, which is really always the, the deal with Rome. Rome, Even ancient imperial Rome would, would go and conquer other people and do their rituals before battle, and they had a, they had the, the, the lightning of Zeus on their shields, and they had this worship of the deities, uh, the stars, either the uh, planets. You could see that on there. Their their armor and their spears and their equipment that they were there to conquer you with their religion and with their army and their legion. And so it wasn't any different. Later on, nothing had really changed after Constantine. Nothing substantively or fundamentally changed within Roman empire building, within Roman imperialism. And the truth is, is that the veneer of of Christianity was really just a facade. So ultimately, they would use the statue of Jupiter, the old deity of Jupiter that the Romans worshiped, and they would stick that up in the Vatican and they would call it St. Peter. Everybody worships Jupiter under the name of St. Peter. Same thing with the uh, the, the statuary of I- Isis in Rome. They would set that up to be the image of Mary, and people would worship that. So they were worshiping Samarimus or Isis in the name of, of Mary. So it's all a big lie. It's all a big deception. And all along, the uh, the annual ritual making of Roman priestcraft was interested in, in surviving, continuing on, and the rise of the new Christian cult, all about the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ to save humanity and his resurrection three days later. Those stories out of Judea were also subsumed in 300 AD by Constantine, who was there really just to make sure that their cult and their religious system of ritualism within Rome would never end. And they would, it would be absorbed into this new Christian religious system and uh, maintain all of its, it, it, of course, the Roman system maintained all of its holy days, its Easter, its Christmas. These are all Saturnalia practices that go back many centuries before the time of Christ, and they would continue on many centuries after the time of Christ. But they were just doing it in the name of Christ. And that's how we're arriving at this this idea, this picture of, of Antichrist. Because Antichrist, the the central word is Christ, but of course it's the antithesis of Christ, it's the opposite of Christ, even though it's using the imagery and the words and the supposed pictures and uh, stories of Christ, they're they're really just lies. They're really not accurate and they're really not the true substance of what Christ taught, they're not the true holidays that Christ celebrated. Christmas and Easter have nothing to do with the actual person of Jesus Christ himself. So that's where we're getting into this subject matter. It really has to go back to do with the delusion that people are under, the continued humiliating deception of believing in an enormous religious system of deception. So we're going to go back here and look a little bit bit more at Muhammad and to discuss how the monks of, uh, the St. Augustinian monks of that period were in the area building, having a great deal of influence, and they would use this situation with Muhammad as it came about to their advantage and they would propagate and help to introduce and literally invent out of whole cloth this system of religion called Islam. In order to get into the deeper discussion about how this monolithic religious conquest took place across the uh, Arabian Peninsula we have to really get into a discussion about ancient philosophy and pagan occult practices that are fairly prehistoric so we're going to go back in time here we're going to listen to an interesting clip here by professor walter j vaith and vaith is v e i t h he has a lot of interesting things to say about the the scope and the landscape of the ancient world and we're looking at how islam had its foundation where the roots of its ideological formation are going to take place and it's in a world where the, the, the Rome is, is, has a lot of control over religion and politics, over the geopolitical situation. And this is in the 7th century. So in a lot of ways, Islam is going to come out and try to establish itself as the antithesis of Roman religion. And so it has to have a lot of the empire-building mechanisms that we see in the Babylonian-based system of religion coming out of Rome. And we're going to see that Islam itself has a lot of ancient, prehistoric Babylonian roots as well. So let's listen to this clip here by Walter Vey.
1: symbol of Catholicism is the moon and the star, hidden, of course, in many other symbols as well. Now, this ancient religion existed before Islam, and the initiates of this religion as we saw in Morals and Dogma were the insiders like Oregon, for example, and the Bishop of Alexandria. These were the initiates who harbored the ancient religion. And they were Christian, so-called, but of course they were not Christian. They just propagated that for the Goyim, Catholicism. True Christianity, they fought tooth and nail and tried to eradicate, and they tried to eradicate the Word of God, as we saw, by changing it. Now, Islam arrives on the scene way after that. So the true harborers were in Christianity before they were in Islam, and they were in two places Alexandria and Rome. Alexandria was eventually taken over by Christianity and the Bastion, the great library was destroyed and the final seat of the occult knowledge was in Rome. So Rome is the seat of the ancient occult knowledge before Islam even appeared on the scene. That is the fact. And this ancient occultism had a potent enemy. Who was that enemy? Christianity. Christianity was growing in the place where the disciples had taught it. Christianity was growing in the heartland of the Middle East, Asia Minor, all the way up to India, the Bible says, into the north of Africa. That is where true Christian doctrine prevailed. They kept the Sabbath. Only Alexandria and Rome did not keep the Sabbath. Alexandria soon disappeared as a seat, and then the Sabbath was not kept in Rome. Very interesting history. So the symbol that Catholicism uses is the star and the sickle moon, and this star, by the way, is exactly the same star as is used in Islam. Isn't that interesting? I wonder who gave rise to whom? Obviously the one who is first can only give rise to the one who comes second, and not the one second give rise to the one who comes first. Isn't that correct? We think about it. So in Catholicism we find the half moon or the sickle moon where the deity is in them. We find Mary replacing Jesus Christ as the mediatrix of all graces. The mediator, the sole mediator and advocate is replaced by Mary. So here in this Roman Catholic monastery, Christ puts the crown of thorns onto Mary and she has the holes in her hand. Mary is always depicted as coming out of a cave. Now the ancient deities always came out of a cave. Laola, the Jesuit, received all his information in a cave. And it is interesting that Muhammad received all of his information in a cave. That's paganism. That has nothing to do with Christianity. And there is the monastery high up on a hill. Now whenever I find a monastery high up on a hill I'm very interested because high hills were pagan high places where they sacrificed to pagan deities. It is interesting that all the cathedrals in the world are built on pagan places of worship. Even the Vatican is built on a pagan site of worship. Nothing has changed. So when I came to this particular In the Middle East, I went to look for the ancient place of worship, and sure enough, on the hill, there it is, the triple arches of the ancient deity of sacrifice in the cave, as per usual. It's interesting that Mary always appears in the cave, in Fatima she's in the cave, in Lourdes she's in the cave, the Pope is always visiting the cave and worshipping in the cave. As Osiris represented the sun in Egyptian law, Isis represented the moon, but the truth is that Osiris represented the male active generative powers of nature, while Isis represented the female passive or prolific powers. That's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. So it's actually a form of nature worship. These people would do well in the bohemian grove, worshipping the trees. The Templar rep- revelation identifies Isis as the Black Madonna on no less authority than a former head of the Priory of Zion. The Black Madonna cult is central to the Priory of Zion, to them at least there is no doubt about the significance of the Black Madonna. You see, Osiris was both black and he was white. And he's worshipped as black and he is worshipped as white. Mary is worshipped as a Black Madonna and as a white Madonna. So we have all these interesting nuances. The Hittites used the symbol of the Half Moon and uh, the Solar Deity. This symbol today, of course, is used by none other than the United Nations.
0: As we kind of examine the interesting comments by Walter Veith. We have to be aware now that there's another player a secret player in the in the equation here and he was making references to Freemasonry and in order to understand the interplay between the ancient pagan mystery religions and their, their syncretistic efforts to run and control all the different religious doctrines and dogmas around the world and you know, virtually unite them together and so that's what you'll see today in the United nations as an effort to unite all world religions so you'll have people uh aboriginal tribesmen uh, with hindus with buddhists with muslims and everyone's supposed to um, tip their hats to the 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 idea that they're all on the same uh, path to the divine godhood or what have you and really it, it singles out protestant bible believing christians as the anomaly and tries to pit the system of world religion against the faith that Bible believers have in Jesus Christ. So we're really seeing an effort to put together a single universal system of religion. And that's what you'll see uh, in between the different monolithic stones of religion is the mortar or the mud of freemasonry trying to connect them together so you uh, in the lodge we'll discuss this later you'll have the divine lights of the lodge that are inside the freemason uh, uh temple within their lodge and they have an altar and there's three books on the altar one of them is the kabbalah the jewish scriptures And then you'll have a King James Bible and then you'll have a Quran, And these are the three lights of the lodge. And so these are the three different religious systems that they intend to virtually knit together. So, and you'll see that in the United Nations, an effort to, to bring together all religious systems into a single unified ritual. And as you know, people who are Bible believers, who, who hold on to the faith of Jesus Christ, of his, of his life, his death and his resurrection in three days, that system of belief is at odds with the rest of the world so it doesn't work together it doesn't link together with Islam, it doesn't link together with Roman religion, it doesn't link together with Hinduism or Buddhism, the call of Jesus Christ is a call to depart from the world, to leave everything else behind to leave the world behind and follow him and his system of belief is at odds with the system in the world, so that's what, if you look in the scriptures, it said if you if you love the world then the love of the father is not in you so you you have to on some level have to depart from the world system the world's cult system of religion it's paganism it's mystery religions it's system of astrological worship as far as the stars and the horoscopes astro theology where you have the the greeks and the romans worshiping the sun that system of Ignorant superstition has to be left behind when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So a lot of people, they they can't do that. They find themselves, maybe they they think that Hinduism is really exotic and attractive, or they find themselves trying to meditate like a Buddhist, or they try to glom on to Islamic practices. And in some effort to find some kind of spiritual center, or some kind of enlightenment, or ability to express religious belief, they reject the idea that Jesus Christ could be born from a virgin, could be the son of God, could be the savior of the world. And uh, for me, it's obvious that that Yeshua, that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, that Islam is a false religion, that Roman Christianity is a false religion, the Hinduism, Buddhism, all of the other systems of world religion, and Freemasonry is a secret system that tries to interlock and, and to universalize all religious systems, also a pathway to darkness and destruction. And when I look at the words of Jesus Christ and his teachings, I hear the words of the creator and I see the light of life. And so this whole discussion is a way for us to understand what has happened in prehistory, in the ancient, in antiquity, that leads us to this point where we don't know where the source of religious dogma begins. So people are are expected to just accept that Santa Claus has reindeer, and one of them has a bright, shiny nose, and it comes down your, 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 your kid's uh, presence, or he comes down the chimney and gives your kid's presence. And this is the kind of silliness and the superstitious ignorance that comes to us from the medieval era, from past ages, and really insults our Enlightenment thinking. And we have an era of intellectual development here in our modern era, and we know that there are no elves, there's no North Pole, and there's no Santa, and really Christ, Jesus Christ of the Bible, has no connection with December 25th or the Christmas practice. It's paganism, it's irreligious, and people are practicing it out of custom. It's customary. They're practicing it out of um, basically being blind followers of a world system. Hallmark cards come out, people put up the Christmas decorations, you deck the halls with Boughs of holly, and all of a sudden everyone it, to participates. So it's very lit up with you know at, at midnight it's very lit up with false lights, colorful lights that are just electric lights. So that that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a frivolous and empty occult tradition of giving people candy and presents, which is really ball worship. So when you worship the mass, the midnight mass on the 25th of December, on the darkest night of the year, it's a high occult black mass that has been worshipped since the time of Egypt and Babylon. And you're participating in it under the guise of being a Christian. So that's why you will find that your life is empty and you have no inspiration. You have no connection with the Holy Spirit, if you will. You're not connected with the God of the Bible because you're doing specifically those practices, which he admonished that he should never do. And you're doing things that Jesus Christ never did. And you're practicing things that, that he was against. So we have to understand that our discussion really takes us into an area of revelation where we need to like, see the reality of our history. We see that the basis of truth behind what our practices are. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here. The connection with Mary that connects Roman religion with Islam and they in Rome and Roman religion, the Pope has lifted Mary up to be a deity She's worthy of worship and prayer, and she takes a more central stage, a more central position within uh, Roman dogma than we find in the Bible. In the biblical texts, for Protestant Christians, Mary doesn't have a significant role. She was a woman who was the mother of Jesus Christ. She was called blessed among women, but she was also considered to be a mortal. She was not someone who was born of a virgin birth, as the the Gnostics at the Vatican try to weave that little storyline in after the fact. She was a regular mortal woman and she was Jesus's mother and he loved her very much. But beyond that, she's not within our religious practice, a deity. She's not within our, you know, understanding of the scope of belief, someone that we should be praying to. And Jesus Christ referred to her as woman. And and that was not an, an, you know, a way to bring her down, but it was a way to put her in her place so that people wouldn't ascribe deity to her after the fact. The reason why Rome finds this necessary to do that is that before the time of Jesus Christ, before the time of, you know, when Julius Caesar broke the republic and became the dictator and the imperator of Rome, before that era, Rome had many female deities. They had Isis. They had all kinds of different statuary all around Rome where female deities were worshipped goddesses, goddess worship. This is what was taking place in Rome for a thousand years. So a lot of these statuaries, a lot of these cults to St. Marimus or to uh, Astaroth or Isis, as we said, or Ishtar, these are all different vernacular for the same female deity. They were worshiped in Rome in in temples to these goddesses. And after the time of Christ, people simply superimposed Mary's identity onto these statues. So a lot of these statues in Rome that we see that we're calling Mary were really earlier idols of semiramis or ishtar or ashtaroth that's where we get our word Easter. as when people practice easter it's really ishtar it's the worship of isis the female goddess and that's why you have the eggs and and the different fertility symbols within easter which are not christian and if you look at the the legend and the mythology around isis uh semiramis how she came to earth in an egg, it's just—it's a lot of mythology, ancient Babylonian mythology about how that goddess came to Earth, and we practice that still today. Those are carried about into our modern customs, and those traditions are kept alive in Rome and, and by those holders of Freemasonry who have the ancient knowledge. And like what Walter Weith was talking about, we're really the Guilem, we're really just the the, uh, the public masses who have no knowledge. We're, we're the ignorant outsiders. Who are not part of their practices, and we just get whatever they, they whatever they put on the holiday cards or whatever Easter egg traditions. Th- those are the elements that we receive as religious practice. And since as we're informing you today, most people are uninformed about these things, we have to go to you know a great extent to to reveal to you the traditions and the background customs that make up your religious practice today. So if you want to really. If you're really serious about having a connection with the God of the Bible and worshiping Jesus Christ in truth and in in, in spirit, you have to know what you're doing. Why are you you painting those eggs? Why are you bringing a Christmas tree into your house when there are practices that are satanic? They're Babylonian. They're Baal worship. So why would you do those things if you're trying to ascribe your worship and your practice and your prayers towards Jesus Christ? You understand? So that that's that's the compromise that you're in. That's the that's the great controversy that we're dealing with here. Is that you're practicing false satanic Babylonian customs in place of worshiping Jesus Christ? And so by doing this, you're insulting God. So it's it's to your advantage to have this knowledge and to recognize that okay, I probably shouldn't have my little kids sitting up on Santa's knee. It's kind of perverted. If you, if you think about it, it's pretty perverted to have your children sitting up on some old man's old man's knee whispering, you know, what what Christmas presents they want to some fake Santa. And then later on, when your kids don't know God and they, they treat you like you're a liar, you taught them false religion, you taught them Santa Claus. Okay, most people, if you look at a lot of Jewish families, a lot of Muslim families, they're not going to teach their kids that. So it's really ignorant for you to do it and think it's cute and take pictures. You're empowering a system of... Spiritual darkness and you're funding it with your money and you're putting you're putting a satanic tree in your house every year on On Satan's high black mass and this was a time when they would sacrifice children in Babylon to To bring bring about the rebirth of the Sun God So it's strange for you to put your children into this religious mix in the first place These practices don't have anything to do with children like we said before at the age of accountability and within the Jewish tradition is 13, your kids shouldn't be inculcated with religion until they're older. Okay, You shouldn't have your two and three and four-year-old opening presents from Santa. Okay, if you do that, you're just really a Satanist. And it's, it's, it's humorous because I think that the, the, those who are initiated into this system of revelation and, and wisdom, and ancient wisdom, know that you're, you're not practicing Christianity. They've taught you a false system. And, you've been, and you and your parents and your parent and grandparents have been practicing a false system. That's what they're doing in Rome, and ultimately that's what they're doing with Islam as well. So I want to get into it just a little bit more here. We have an interesting take here by Mike Hogard. And he's just really an internet guy that you can see. He's like a, a, a pretty mainline Baptist preacher. And he has some interesting things to say about Islam and Freemasonry and the occult, which... You know, typically his other speeches aren't really that interesting, but this one goes to the point of our our subject matter here. So let's, let's give him a listen
2: idea behind using symbols is that you can, and some people say, well, you know, symbol means whatever you want it to mean. That's, that's the point. That's the point of, of using a symbol. Um, I think it was Albert Pike said, morals and dogma. He said, we use symbols and we tell all the little guys down here what it means, but we're not really telling the truth all of us big dogs at the top and Albert Pike was pretty big, kind of like me. Um, He said now we know the real meaning of it. And I suspect that Albert Pike didn't know what it is that you and I know because Albert Pike didn't really believe that the Bible was the inerrant infallible and only word of God. He believed it was like a mystery book with all these other mystery books in it. I think I'm going to tell the world what's going on. Let's, Let's reveal a mystery. Let's reveal a secret. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. And then he said in verse 9 the thing that hath been it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the Son. Now that is a sort of a basis for Bible typology. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And he's reiterating the wisdom that came out of Solomon, the preacher, in the book of Ecclesiastes. So he says, there really is no such thing as a new religion or a unique religion. They all teach or all point to the same God, Mike you're not saying that are you? Yeah, I am. There's one exception and that is true Bible Christianity does not point to the same God, but Buddhism, Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism, supeism, um, you name it, they all point a they all point to the same God, which is Lucifer, including the religion of Islam and islam was to me was always a it it, it was a mystery um, i couldn't figure it out you know they had this quran why is it why is it wrong to burn the Koran and it's okay to burn the bible the guy he was interviewing said this he said, well, even all, ever, all the Christians know um, that God didn't write the Bible. Men wrote the Bible and all the Christians, they don't have a problem with that. Well, let's say most of the Christians don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. But anyway, he said everybody knows that God did not write the Bible. Only men wrote the Bible and yet Muslims believe that God wrote the Quran. Therefore it is sacred and holy and it's a, oh, it would oh, be a terrible thing to do that. You see how topsy turvy this world is, but anyway, the 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 religion of Islam. I didn't get. I kept thinking, what uh, you you go to the uh, you go to the what what is it the uh, the Muslim worship place and and you learn how to blow up buildings and kill people. Is that is that what is that what your religion is? Oh no, it's a religion of peace. No, not really. Not not really. Um, So I didn't understand it, and I wasn't about to sit down and learn Aramaic and then read the Quran from front to back and study the life of the the Prophet Muhammad. I I wasn't going to do that. To me, I like for things to be simple. Islam is not a unique religion. We're going to focus not on all the general teachings of Islam and this and that and the other. We're going to focus on what it is that they focus on. Five times a day. Five. I want you to think about that. Five times a day, every Muslim in the world puts their focus toward one thing. It's a city called Mecca. But it's not just the city of Mecca. It's what is the central part of Mecca. That's where they're all pointed toward. All the Muslims in the world are facing and leading in the direction of this one God. And we're going to understand that. We're going to understand the mystery of Mecca. What 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 is it that is so secretive and so powerful there that these people, by duty, by religious ritual, uh, their claim to salvation is based upon this. Five times a day, they must stop, drop, and roll and pray toward Mecca. What is it that they're praying to, and why? Why is this so powerful amongst them? We're gonna we're gonna show you the mystery. And I know I'm probably going back over some information that we have shared but i'm bringing it in and sort of a new light and pointing it in a new direction so that we could understand exactly what it is that's being kept secret from let's say over a billion muslims in this world what is it that's being hidden what what is it that she doesn't want everybody to know and yet when you understand the language of symbols and when you understand that this bible has the answer to everything, then we we don't have to study all the in-depth ideas of, of uh, Islam and all the branches and all that. We don't have to do that. We understand from the Bible exactly what's going on. Mystery Babylon is keeping the secret of the mystery of iniquity. She is the one that is, is covering and, and veiling everything and not wanting anyone to discover or find it out. Because, I mean, stop and think about it. We understand that Roman Catholicism, they don't really worship the real Jesus Christ. How do we know? Because he's a statue to them. And so he is the idol, I D O L, shepherd in Roman Catholicism. So if they're not worshiping the real Jesus, then they're worshiping the fake Jesus, another Jesus that Paul warned about, Antichrist that John said. It wouldn't sit well for a billion Roman Catholics in this world to have revealed to them that they're not worshipping the right Jesus. Roman Catholicism's power base is the fact that the priesthood only has the right to A. Interpret the Bible. B. Even in some cases read the Bible. They tolerate translations of the Bible that they approve but the truth of it is they tell them we will tell you what to believe. Their power base comes in knowing all of your sins in the confessional. Their power base comes to the idea that they say, unless what you do for God is done inside the mother church, unless what you do for God is done inside the mother church, you can never, ever, 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 ever expect to go to heaven. Never. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 7, beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man void of understandings, because he wasn't reading his Bible, passing through the street near her corner. And he went in the way to her house in the, look at that word, twilight. Hmm. Think about that for a minute. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black dark night i want you to think now about something in mecca that is black are you there yet we're getting there okay something that's black in in mecca i want you to think about that and what what really what black represents in the bible okay think about think about white and think about black think about the opposites and what they represent in the scriptures spoke of mecca what is it what is it that's in mecca what is it that drives billions of people all over the world, mostly Arabs, mostly mostly children of Ishmael? What drives them? What is so powerful there in Mecca? And remember we talked about that her way represents darkness and blackness. What is it that's black inside of Mecca? It's called the Kaaba. And Islam, this is interesting. This is really, really interesting to me. There is no new thing under the sun, and everything matches the Bible. Islam has five pillars. One, two, three, four, five. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Revelation chapter 9. The fifth trumpet sounds. The key comes down, and it's going to unlock the Pit. What's been revealed, what's been concealed is now going to be revealed. And Islam just happens to have five pillars, five <clears throat> five laws, five laws, five books in the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All five of them were written by the lawgiver Moses, and they described the law of God, that if you cannot obey the law, then you'll die. And so Islam is like an image of that. They have five pillars. One of them is you have to bow down five times a day facing this black box, and you have to pray. And if you don't do that, you cannot go to paradise. You have to make what's called a hajj. That's why all these people are here. They're making their hajj, their pilgrimage. They must go to Mecca. I think it's at least once, once in their life. They must go to Mecca. They must compass the Kaaba, something that has a black veil over it, something that most people will never ever see the inside, only only, only like the elite of the Muslims, only like the elite of the Arabs, the, the rich ones, the high-ranking um, priests or whatever it is, only those guys can go inside and see what really is in there. And I'm gonna show you some things that are in there. Now remember, the is a cube Okay? It's not an oval. It's not anything. We'll get to the oval in a minute. The Kaaba is a cube. And then I saw that and I'm going, I've read something on that. So I checked with Manley Hall. He's dead now, but he wrote a book called The Secret Teachings of All Ages. And Manley Hall said, and Dan Brown spoke of that in The Lost Symbol, too. It's how I remembered it. He said the cube, basically, is a, it's a secret mystical symbol. Number one, it represents a number. And it's not the number four. It represents The number six, that's how many sides it has on. This idea, especially with gambling, okay? They throw the dice and your fortune is bound up inside of that cube with the number six on it. Someone took a video of inside the kebab. Notice that it's supported by three pillars. There was something else. As the camera panned around to one wall inside the Kaaba, there it is on the wall, a symbol of the sun, and underneath it, a symbol of the moon. Now, I want to stop right here, because this is what I think is is ironic. Muslims are very proud of the fact that they don't worship idols. Yeah, they do. The Kaaba is one big giant Gigantic idol and inside the kebab the symbols of the Sun and the moon God said you'd be driven to worship them And that's exactly what they do. They most people don't know it But that's exactly what they're doing They're worshiping the images of the Sun and the images of the moon and the Sun and the moon represent polar opposites That are fused together the male and the female light and darkness yin and yang sons of God daughters of men That's what that symbolism is Okay, so
0: we're back. We had to um, work through Mike Hogard's little seminar there. It occurs to me at this point, even though he's doing his uh, demonstration as a, a Bible preacher or a Baptist pastor, he he's obviously has a lot of occult and Freemason uh, knowledge, so he, he probably is a Freemason. And it, it occurs to me something that, he, that he, you know it stands out to me that he was talking about when he talked about the fact that they would have to um, go, when when Muslims go on their Hajj, they go around the, the Kaaba, the Q Cube, which is I think it's Arabic for cube, and they go around the large black Kaaba and they circle around it. And so that's interesting to me. There, there's more uh, Freemason or Freemasonic uh, symbolism there because there's the cube, and as they circle around it, you have t- together the circle and the square together. So I think that's a fascinating imagery. It's built into their religious ritual that isn't immediately apparent, and it goes back to the uh, the duality between the the, the the circle and the square, squaring the circle. In a free, a Freemasonic uh, way, it also goes back to the duality between dark and light, male and female, and a cult of symbolism. And as we're moving forward, we're going to try to expose the the occult framework that's built within Islam that shows you that the ideological framework that was coming in at the the moment of gestation and the Islamic formation of thought and religion would crystallize at its center a lot of biblical concepts. So, we already know that Islam considers itself to be uh, an extension of Abrahamic religion. It's within the Saran the Quran and the surahs, it talks about Abraham and it, it, it suppose, it presupposes that the promise and the power of God went down to Ishmael and and Ishmael's descendants. And so there's really the disagreement that we have between, um, the, the, the Arab, uh, Arab peoples who have Islam and the Jewish people who consider that the promise of God went to Isaac. And that's what it says in the biblical texts. So if you go to the Quran, it's going to say that the promise of God went to Ishmael and, uh, And it has a lot of the different background themes um, built into it. So it's relying heavily on the histories of the Septuagint and the Torah and the prevailing Hebrewic Jewish religion that had been around for a thousand years before Islam. Islam is really going to draw from whole cloth this idea that it's an extension or a continuation of the Abrahamic religion. And it tries to put... uh, Jesus Christ as a prophet, uh, lesser than Muhammad. And it tries to take on this idea that Mary is plays an important role within spirituality. So at a time before, uh, people even consider Mary to have a role, we understand that Roman religion venerates Mary with prayers and holy days and, uh, considers her to be someone that you necessarily must rely on in order to, for salvation so as we get into the 7th century, and the uh, the conquering Arab armies decide that they are going to prop up this new religion, we can see that a lot of Augustinian monks in the area who are building monasteries are going to be having a great influence on Muhammad and his writings. And remember, Khadija was Muhammad's wife when he was 21, I think she was 40, and she was said to be living inside of... a. She was a nun inside of a Roman Catholic monastery. So you can see already that at the very outset, the very beginning of Islamic thought, we have this idea that they're drawing from the pieces of the religious mythology that's available at the time. So we're going to go ahead and listen to a really short clip here. A Muslim scholar is going to discuss the importance of Mary Within the thinking of, within the framework of the Quran and the Surahs, within their religious context. And in fact, Mary takes a more important role within Islam than it really does within Christianity. Later on, we know that the Pope would uh, use his papal powers of pronunciation to, to, to elevate Mary as a, as a mediatrix within Roman religion. And we all know that if you look at the rosary, that Mary is on the rosary. And if you follow the beads up, it's above the crucifix. If you follow the beads up, and Mary is there at the the center of the necklace. And so you can see in many different ways that they're they're elevating the feminine divine role the way that it was in past uh, prehistoric Babylonian and Egyptian cultism. So let's listen to this interesting clip here by this fellow, uh, Gabriel Reynolds, and he's going to talk about the place of Mary within Islam.
3: The place of Mary in Islam is an important topic in part because it shows the connections between Islam and Christianity and some possible bridges in terms of spirituality and devotion, but there are also some distinctions between the two which are important to underline as well. Well, the first thing to say is that Mary has a prominent place in the Quran. Mary is actually spoken about more in the Quran than she is in the New Testament. There's an entire chapter of the 114 chapters or surahs in the Quran. Surah, surah 19, excuse me, is titled in Arabic Maryam, which is Mary, and it tells the story of the Annunciation, essentially, and her... Um, her devotion to God through that, and the miracles that take place when she gives birth to Jesus. Jesus is said to be able to, to have the, the gift of speech as an infant in that chapter. Sort of 3 also tells the story of Mary, and it gives details not only of the Annunciation, which is found there in verse 45 of sort of 3, but also of Mary's own birth. So the figure of Anne, the figure whom Christians know as Saint Anne, appears in the Qur'an. She's not referred to by name. In fact, the only woman referred to by name in the Qur'an is Mary. Her mother is referred to as the wife of Imran. But we have the story of how she dedicates the, the child that's in her womb to God. And later that child is found in a building called the Meherab in Arabic, which is pretty clearly an allusion to the Jerusalem temple. In other words, the traditional story, again, not found in the New Testament, but in Christian tradition of Mary being raised in the temple by Joachim and Anne is found or alluded to in the Quran. So. Um, The founding scripture of Islam has a great interest in the figure of Mary. The place of Mary in Islamic religious life is diverse, um, and the different currents of Islam take different approaches to the figure of Mary. Within Sufi Islam and within um, many traditions of popular Islam, she's seen as a figure of great purity, and um, also someone who can be asked for, at times, um, intercession in certain Marian shrines in places like Turkey, India, also Lebanon and Syria, Sednaya and Syria, um, especially Muslim women, will go to Marian shrines and pray there um, in the hope of especially um, of having a child.
0: So we can see here that Gabriel Reynolds, and it looks like he's out of the University of Notre Dame, has this really fascinating perspective. And it shows that Mary plays an integral, central theme within Islam. And... That is important to know because it really inculcates within itself the actual predominant mythological archetype of the time. So in the 7th century, we're going to see that, that Roman Catholicism is, is having a huge influence across the world and it's growing. And the papacy has grown to the point that uh, the Pope is a high priest over all Christianity. And at this point, these Gnostic ideas... These extra biblical uh, ideas, like the idea that a Mary, the assumption of Mary, the, the idea that Mary was herself born of a virgin. So Mary's mother, uh, Anne, St. Anne, was somehow a virgin. These are not biblical concept- concepts. These are not terminology or, or history that we get from the Bible, but they're really Gnostic scriptures that were written three or four hundred years after the event of Christ. They were just fictitious false Gospels, like the Gospel of of Thomas and the other Gnostic Gospels out there, who are not considered to be part of the Biblical lexicon. So we have to understand that these extra-Biblical Gnostic concepts, like the Assumption of Mary, and uh, the, you know Mary's mother, who supposedly was named Anne, and all, all these ideas that were floating around within the Gnosticism of the Roman Catholic Church, are now being written into the Quran and the surahs and the uh, the Islamic context are, are being presented within the beginning fabric, within the beginning orchestration of Islamic religion as actual factual history. So you have these Gnostic terms and these Gnostic concepts being superimposed into Islam as if they're real history. And I think we have to understand that, that this is how we understand Islam, is to be an extension of the influence and the ideological framework of Roman Catholicism as it as it extended its influence over Muhammad and literally brought about the creation of the Islamic religious cultism so this this Islamic ritual was going to be designed by the power players who are the holders of the occult knowledge in Rome And like we said, in Alexandria, ultimately the libraries of Alexandria and the city will be burned by Islamic armies later on, leaving, like we were discussing with Walter Veith, leaving behind the city of Rome and its system of religio-cultic ritual with the last bastion of occult power left after Alexandria was burned. So it's beyond the scope of this particular episode to go all into the, the complete history of the mystery the religious mystery system, the, the the religious mystery schools, the rituals of mystery that were brought out of Egypt and Babylon. But it's suffice to say that we're trying to establish the connection, the ideological inception point for Islam and where the 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 dogma and the mythology of Romanism was being inculcated across the world, and at the same time, it was being introduced into the ideas. Now, remember, Muhammad was illiterate; he couldn't read or write. So, his wife Khadija, having come from been very wealthy and living in a, in a monastery, a Roman Catholic monastery, probably built by the Augustinian monks, you can see that what was happening was that this power structure that was being built by conquest now had to have a religious backing or religious justification and so they would just knit together the the Quran and the surahs and this this Islamic doctrine into the background in order to to give it uh, this conquest this uh, Arabian conquest a divine sanction if you will. As we're going further and trying to make this point, we'll listen to some other is Islamic apologetics. These are going to be Islamic scholars and teachers who are trying to convert us to Islam by showing us that within their doctrine, and within their Quran and their surahs and in their texts are written in these ideas about Mary. It really reduces Jesus down to just kind of like a background figure and a lesser prophet. And it really uplifts Mary to the central role that that Muslims uh, and, and, and And Muslim teachers and Muslim clerics and scholars are going to really revere Mary, even though they don't really have anything to say about Jesus. He's really going to play an important role within the Islamic text. Mary is referenced over and over and over again. And, of course, this reiterates the point that we're making that the actual ideological genesis of Islam is being taken from, not from the Hebraic scriptures, but from the practices, customs, and doctrines, and dogma of the Roman Catholic hierarchy itself. So let's listen to this interesting little. Uh, basically, it's a, it's a, it's an outreach. It's a religious outreach video that's trying to win you over to Islam, and it just, it just can discuss marrying. So let's talk about it. Christianity and Islam, the
4: two dominating world religions, both believers in the same God, the same prophets, and all their miracles. But to what extent
2: do they really coincide? Mary, the mother of Jesus, remains prominent and revered in both Islamic and Christian
3: teachings, the great virgin lady chosen by God to miraculously give birth to his messenger. Over the years, Imran and Hannah
2: had grown old and was made by her mother. Zachariah built for Mary a room in the temple where she could live and serve in the way of Allah.
3: Although women were restricted from entering the temple, she was brought up in the place of worship where she was regularly visited by Prophet Zechariah.
5: Women were not allowed to stay at the place of worship and to be raised there. But this was given as an exception to Maria. Again, a sign of her devotion and also a sign that the people who were there at the time realized this was no ordinary woman. She was a chaste woman, otherwise I would not have let her to be
1: raised in the place of worship. Allah selectively appointed Mary.
2: Her outstanding characteristics and unique personality distinguished her from all other women, and he found her worthy to carry his messenger.
0: It's, it's really shocking to the Protestant mind that we're expected to believe that, that from the Quran that Mary is elevated and that there's this, these further stories, extra biblical stories that are not described in, in our biblical texts that describe Mary as having been live, lived in the temple and, and, and there's all these further mythology and this further kind of constructing of Mary's uh, profile within religion and building her up um, because she's going to have this miraculous virgin birth that we're expected to believe. We're expected to believe that that virgins can give birth and that Mary's mother also, you know, Mary herself was given birth uh, miraculously by her mother. And these miracles are not you know, impossible for for Allah at all, and that that Mary is going to be made pregnant with Jesus, who is just a messenger who isn't really discussed. But the really profound thing is is, is Mary's you know extra extra storyline that she's kind of built in that are built into the Quran, and so you can see that the 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 evolving religious universal religious system that's coming about it's trying to put together and unite Islam and Roman religion together into one system is going to have to rely on Mary. Mary is going to become the central figure within religion, within both Islam and Roman religion. And when they're talking about the the connection, and the bridges between Christianity and Islam, we must understand that Mary plays a significant role within the dogma and the traditions of the Vatican. And for Bible-believing Christians, you know, Baptist church believers, Christians in America, Mary plays no role whatsoever. And so she doesn't have a significant place within our prayer life, within our ritual, within our belief system. She's a woman who who was a sinner who required the salvation um, that was brought by her son. And, and he was born of her virginity because she wasn't married. That's the miracle. The miracle is in, in the fact that Jesus Christ has come to the earth to be the salvation of the world. And, that, and even though Islam, and in, the, in this context, the Vatican itself through the creation of Islam, tries to downplay the role of Jesus Christ, tries to turn him into a, you know, a secondary messenger, an unimportant factor is really the dangerous part of this, because we have to understand that Jesus Christ came into the world as the son of God and laid down his life for the salvation of the world. And that our understanding about the divine and about what God expects from us is to be informed by the teachings of Jesus Christ and not by the elaborations and the fallacy that Islam tries to build out in this mythology of Mary. So it's dangerous for people who are coming out of the Catholic Church who really love the Marian shrines, who like to go to these special Marian, who want to find, who see Marian apparitions, who want to have this. Uh, spiritual, this mystical, spiritual experience, and they expect to see Mary appear to them and give them some kind of kernels of truth. And the the nunneries within the Vatican, within the the Catholic Church, are completely dedicated to praying to Mary. So it's not, it shouldn't be surprising that we find that that Muslim women, too, go to these Marian shrines and pray. And so it's really a new idolatry. And it's really the old, Babylonian system of goddess worship, where Samarimus and Nimrod played this dual role, male and female. And so you can see the rise of this Babylonian cultism and it's really at the heart of the occult doctrine within Islam, and it's at the heart of the occult doctrine within the Vatican too, who have no real interest in the Jewish savior, the Jewish carpenter, the man of of Nazareth. They don't have, have any interest in that. They really just want to keep their superstitious idolatry, their their male and female cult, their occult duality of Nimrod and Samaris. They want to keep that alive and in play. And they do that by allowing us to believe that the, the images that we're looking at are supposed to be... Joseph or other, you know, Mary or other biblical figures. When really they're just the age-old system of Roman idolatry and Greek idolatry that has drawn from the Egyptian and the Babylonian. So we just need to have a little more information. We need to have a little more information about what these systems of religio-cultic power really represent. And we have to understand that the Bible doesn't have a religious system. It's 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 got sixty-six books. It's got histories, and it's got learning to be studied, but it doesn't really have any imagery or any uh, shrines. The Bible doesn't offer up any kind of idol or any kind of like place, a center, central city like in Mecca, no Kaaba within the Bible to, to circle around in order to have a, a religious practice that can that everyone can see. Okay, so the, the religious practice of Christianity is to be done in secret, is to you go into your into your room and into your inner closet and in the darkness there. And you pray and you do your religious work before the Lord where no one can see. So it's, you know, while this kind of profane religious doctrine that we see, it's an occult doctrine within Islam and within the Roman Vatican system of hierarchy there. We can see that it's an exo- exoteric system that everyone's supposed to look and see. On Ash Wednesday, you get a little ash on your forehead, and you go in front of everyone and you pray. and You do these r- religious rituals that everyone can see. But within Christianity, these are esoteric practices that we do within the privacy of our own homes. We listen to some Muslim apologists and Muslim scholars discuss very briefly their ideas about Mary and their presuppositions about how the role she plays within uh, the Islamic thought. So, you know, as a Muslim, you can't question the Quran. It just it's just revealed truth, and you have to accept it or have your head cut off. So, when you accept the Quran, you're accepting that, that those histories are all true, and and anything that disagrees with those histories can couldn't it must be false. So, you know, the presupposition here is that. That, that Mary's mother can be known. We don't know her from history, but seven centuries later, uh, they say that uh, Anne is Mary's mother. So these Muslims, they have to believe it. And so later on, now we're in the year 2020, and, you know, apologists for the the Vatican are going to come into play and they're going to use these Quranic verses to help buoy their position, to help be a bulwark in their belief that Mary is somehow part of the divinity, that she is you know, worthy of prayer, that she's up in heaven receiving prayer and appearing on earth, and that she's somehow part of the godhood and uh, that she's doing the work of God. So these are just really heresies and misunderstandings um, that are really carrying on down the line here through history. So, as Bible believers, we understand that Mary is a a really wonderful person, but she also died in her sins and required that that her faith in Jesus Christ save her soul, just like anyone else. In other words, she didn't have any special divine magic, even though the the Vatican and now, since the 7th century, now the Muslims are telling us that she's a really important woman that we should all pray to her and revere. We have to understand that this is really a misunderstanding and false doctrine so let's go in here and let's see what this fella here um scott i can't remember his name this fella is going to talk here let's let's listen to what he has to say hey this is
6: scott smith the scott smith blog today we're going to be going over our lady of Fatima and mary's special connection to islam so doesn't believe it's going to happen through direct evangelization. He believes it's going to happen through a summoning of the Muslims to a veneration of the mother of God. So wait a second. If Muslims won't convert because of Jesus, what makes us think that they'll convert because of the blessed mother? This brings us to the second part of this video, Mary in the Quran. Amazingly, Mary holds a very exalted place in the Quran. She is the only woman mentioned my name in the Quran at all. And she's mentioned over 70 times in the Quran. What's more, the Quran even names Mary explicitly as the greatest of all women of creation. Isn't that incredible? While Protestants have rejected a number of Marian doctrines, like the Immaculate Conception, the Perpetual Virginity of Mary, and the Assumption of Mary, Islam holds all these to be true. Amazingly, the Quran makes such a full-throated defense of Mary's virginity, the Quran actually blames all the bad stuff that happened to Jews because they did not believe in Mary's virginity. Interestingly, the Quran is likely not citing the New Testament when it talks about Mary. Instead, it's citing an apocryphal work of Mary's childhood. We know this partly because the Quran is quoting Saint Anne, the mother of Mary, and we only know that Anne and Joachim, were the parents of Mary from this apocryphal work of Mary's childhood. The Quran cites Saint as saying this O oh Lord, I vow and I consecrate to you what is already
0: within me, accept it for me. All right, so we'll just stop it right there. And we can see here that the the apologetics of both Islam and these Roman Catholic scholars, like this scholar right here, are converging on this center point. And the mystical revelation that we're supposed to take from all this is that somehow Mary and the, the, Mary, the Marian shrines and the power of Mary to break through all these different religious fields. Um, what I take from it is that the Roman Catholic scholars were there at the very inception point when Islam was created and they had a lot to, to, to say to Muhammad and to his followers about what should be in the Quran and, and the fact that Mary has been written into the Quran so many times. And it, it speaks a lot here that, that they use these, what he calls, apocryphal books which are really just histories of Mary and Jesus that were written through or four or 500 years later, which are totally erroneous and are basically totally fiction. They took these apocryphal writings about Mary Mary's mother, who they call Saint Anne, and they've written them into the Quran. And this should tell you right there, just like Walter Faith was discussing, that which one came first. Ultimately, this cult of Mary, this Marian worship, this elevating of Jesus' mother to the point of deity came from the Vatican, and then six centuries later was introduced and developed within the scriptures of the Quran, within the Islamic religion. At the very beginning stages, and so later on, now a thousand, two thousand years later, we're supposed to some 1400 years later, we're supposed to all believe that Mary and the power of Mary, to, uh, you know, it, it is central. So the, the Muslims can't accept Jesus, the Christians can't accept Muhammad, so everyone is supposed to converge and worship Mary, and she's really the real light of revelation here. And that's what we're going to find out when we start to dig in a little bit more into the doctrine of Freemasonry, that the, the hidden occult dynamic that's been coming up out of this tra- these, uh, these secret traditions that's being externalized, this hierarchy that's being externalized is really the, the cult of Mary, and that everyone should be praying to Mary and uh, these apparitions at Fatima and the interconnectivity, interconnections between Islam and the Vatican are really coming back to the fact that they've been laid there at the foundation point that these doctrines were laid within the foundation of Islam, and even having an entire book within the the, uh, the Quran called Mary, you know, the, the title of the the, the chapter is called Mary, should tell us that that Mary was used incorrectly and, like I said, er, in, uh, erroneously. To become a religious figure within Islam. As we go forward in history, we're going to find out that this groundwork has already been laid and the foundation has already been built for the connection and for the uniting of Islam and Roman Catholicism into a one-world religious system. And in order to make that point here, we're going to go a little bit farther with Professor Vaith, uh, Walter J. Vaith, and he's discussing this very topic.
1: Islamic dress. Well, you can look at old-fashioned Catholic nuns and you will find that the dress is identical. Catholic nuns wear the same dress as Islamic women of Orthodox faith. This is uh, the great mosque in Damascus. Fascinatingly, inside the mosque, right inside is this shrine, and there is a Muslim man praying at this shrine. Now, who's he praying to? Is it to Allah there? No. He's worshipping a relic of the dead. Because this is the shrine of none other than John the Baptist. Now, if you know something about Johansenites, we've spoken about that, then you can already pick up, if you pick up the name John, you have Johansenism, then you have secret societies blended in the background. And they claim that this place has the head of John the Baptist. So an Islamic shrine in Damascus, this is, by the way, the oldest mosque, the most illustrious, In uh, that country, has this head. Fortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has a shrine with the arm of John the Baptist. I always say if they carry on, they might be able to put him together again. I don't know. So it is the same form behind the scenes. Inside the mosque, the women are. Not that important. They are relegated to the side. The men get the central positions. They are praying there with beads. In Catholicism, you pray with beads. You pray with rosaries. Now, which other religion has the priesthood just for men? The Roman Catholic Church is exactly the same.
0: Just pause uh, Walter Veith's interesting comments just for a minute. But I can point out to you that under during the time when. Uh Jesus Christ came and walked in Galilee and came into Jerusalem and was crucified by Roman soldiers, uh, being falsely accused of all kinds of things. At that time, the Roman Senate was being controlled by, I believe it was, it was either Augustus, or if he hadn't died, it was Tiberius, Caesar. One of the Caesars was running the Roman Empire, and Pontius Pilate was there representing the authority of Caesar directly to control the region, to be the, the proconsul or the the consul to, to be the governor of the area and he was there to effectuate Pax Romana which is Roman peace and he had no interest in allowing there to be some kind of uprising or to find out that there was a a, a king of the Jews, a king of, of Israel who was coming forth who had great power to heal the blind and to raise the dead and was this miraculous man uh, who was popular with all the people and was for all intents and purposes represented a real endangered a real endangerment to Pontius Pilate's reign there as governor. And he could not allow there to be another king, another authority that the Jews could turn to. And on the other hand, the rabbinical council, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the men there, the rabbis who were running Jerusalem, who had their puppet king in Herod Second, Herod the Tetrarch, it could not allow there to be anyone who would interrupt this peaceful and very economic, very financially advantageous relationship that they had with the Roman empire. So they weren't really interested in, in breaking away or or, or gaining their freedom from the Roman legions and the, this council and this uh, Roman governor who was there to ostensibly take over the region. And this was happening very slowly and cautiously so that the people weren't in an uproar. But during that Passover year, they decided that they would get rid of this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he was crucified. And three days later, he was out of the grave, and the grave was empty. And this whole situation, this whole saga, caused an absolute upheaval within within Rome. Because the whole situation there, the history, the the, the current contemporary events that were going on with Jesus Christ and his disciples were, were known throughout the empire. They were not something that were happening in a vacuum. People were aware that Jesus Christ, that that this man, this man from Galilee was there and that he was changing the hearts and minds of the people and that he was doing these great works. And when he was crucified, he was also well known. Obviously, it's 2020, but we're still discussing it. So we have to understand that at that time, it was a face-off between the, the power and the authority of Rome to determine people would believe. So you have the Roman pantheon of all the gods so these are going to be all the different religious systems and all the cult practices from Egypt, from Pythagoras all, all the different rituals and priest crafts and the different temples that you could imagine from all around the world every conquered territory under Rome had introduced the unique system of worship within this Roman pantheon so if you were to have a state-sponsored state-authorized religious practice under Rome, you were good to go. You paid your little, you know, you you accepted that that this pantheon of Roman temples was there. They were all universal. They were all unified together under Caesar's law. And you were free to practice your religion under Roman law. And you were free to have Caesar as your king and your only rightful king. And it was against the law to have any other king but Caesar. That was the whole issue with Jesus Christ in the first place. These people had determined that they were going to try to catch Jesus Christ in between these politics, these religious geopolitical nuances, and try to make him a victim of Roman tyranny and have him killed because they knew that he could not accept Roman religion and he couldn't. Jesus Christ himself could not accept the authority of Caesar. It wasn't going to happen. His followers weren't going to do it either. So it's the same dynamic today. Today we have a system of religious approved and Roman sanctioned religious accepted religious practice and you can see the Vatican and and the Pope get together with all the different religions of the world but they don't accept Protestantism they don't accept the Protestant Bible they don't accept the Protestant doctrine about the Lord they're willing to include Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and Satanists and and every different kind of tribesmen and tribal animism every different kind of practice in the world, but they will not accept that Jesus Christ is alone the only king of kings and that the, the Pope has absolutely no authority. So this is the same situation that Jesus Christ faced under the Caesars that he, and under Caesar's governor. Caesar's governor was there to enforce Roman law to make sure that no one was practicing or accepting any uh, religious system that Caesar didn't accept or per- practicing any particular political belief That Caesar didn't approve of, and it's the same situation today. Today, the Pope is going to approve of all the different world's religions. They're going to try to make a universal, one-world religion and make peace with Islam and cause Mary to be this important figure within within uh, religious thinking within the dogma of Christian, Roman Christian beliefs. And they're going to try to raise her up to be some kind of idol to be worshipped and prayed to. But they will not accept the authority of the scriptures in the Bible that point out that Islam is just a backwards and false religion and that Roman practices and Roman traditions and doctrines are just fallen, backward, pagan, and wicked incantations and sorceries from Babylon. Then we should not practice them. So So today, just like in Rome, they have the empire. They have the legions, they have the governors, and and they have all the armies, and they have all the the gold, and they have all the seeming pretended authenticity of religious pomp and circumstance, but they don't have the little people, the little people out there who are still going to follow Jesus Christ, even after all these centuries, even in 2020, we're still just going to follow Jesus Christ, we're going to reject the papal Caesar there in Rome, and we're going to reject all of his universal world religion, and we're going to reject Islam, and we're going to reject the idea that people should worship Mary, and we're going to reject Freemasonry and all their attempts to make a single system of authorized worship that discounts the Jewish Messiah, this, this, this carpenter from Galilee, who was the son of God, who paid the price for the sins of the world. These are just ideas that are just unacceptable to Freemasonry, unacceptable in the Vatican, and unacceptable in Islam. And these are the practices that we're going to have to hold to we to have to hold to this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, having said that, we'll get back here to discuss a little more with Eric John Phelps and Craig Szymanski are going to do a little discussion here about the whole subject matter. And we'll get back to Walter Weith some more. He does His uh, seminars are expansive. They're hours and hours long. He does really a, an, a, an incredible uh, exploration of some of these t- subject matters. So let's get on here and just have, listen to this discussion with Eric John Phelps and Craig Zizmanski here.
7: Good morning and welcome to the Wednesday June 9th 2010 edition of the Investigative Journal. I'm your host Greg Szymanski, listening to LibertyRadioLive.com and today my guest is author Eric John Phelps, also a radio broadcaster and Eric uh, has a website called VaticanAssassins.org. I, I recommend you go there if you want to learn the truth about uh, the Jesuit order in America. And every time uh, like I said last week uh, when I had Eric I'd have him back on for another appearance, every time I want to get the juices flowing and uh Understand really what the Jesuit Order is all about, I call on Eric. And Eric, today, I just wanted to start out this way. I'm getting a lot of emails that are getting me a little bit angry that people just aren't getting it. Uh, The war on terror, uh, Islam, all of this uh, hatred that's being mounted against people. Uh, But no one really understands. You know, there are people that do, but the majority of people just don't get it. Uh, When we tell them that uh, terrorism was orchestrated here, the Muslim people are being used by the Vatican just like the American people, and this hatred is being whipped up to create a war to kill off the good people of both uh, uh, Christians and Muslims. And I wanted to get to set the record straight. Let's start off by saying this statement. Uh, I want you to prove to us, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the Vatican created Islam. And uh, silence some of these email
5: critics I get, because I'm getting tired of it. Go ahead. Okay, um, if the, your listeners would like to go to my broadcast of the last two Fridays, the last previous Fridays, they can listen to uh, Count Vittorio Vivaldi Third out of Venice, who uh, very well shows that the Islam is a creation of the Vatican. And uh, we also can see that the essential tenets of Islam are the exact same tenets of Romanism. Islam has jihad Romanism has crusades Islam has a central city Mecca <laughs> Vatican has a papacy, Roman Catholicism has a central city in Rome. Uh, Islam counts beads, they have little beads that they count, but so does Romanus. They have, uh, it, it's very, very many, many identical things. I have ten strong points that I've posted on the absolute similarity of Islam and Catholicism. And what the count surprised me with was that he said that the papacy has always been in control of Islam. That's why Saladin was good to the, to the people allowing them to leave Jerusalem after he had conquered Jerusalem and why he had killed 230 knights of Malta and Knights Templars. He was killing these Knights of Malta and Knights Templars because they were essentially enemies of the papacy. <laughs> they wouldn't rule the Kingdom of Jerusalem for the Pope. <laughs> so Saladin killed
4: 230 of them.
5: I mean, if we go on and on, we can see, for example, the war in Serbia by uh, uh, in the 1990s by uh, the Croatia and the Albanian Muslims. Uh, this is a continuation of using Islam to destroy the Orthodox Christian people. Uh, we see that uh, when... when Constantinople was conquered in 1453. It falls. They behead the last Greek emperor there and the second Rome which is which Constantinople was called falls to Islam that creation of the papacy. So there are many, many, many evidences of it. Wherever Islam raises its sword it always kills for the benefit of the Pope. They don't go and kill all the Roman Catholic people. They don't kill the Roman hierarchy. They kill non-papal Christians the Orthodox, the Protestants and Jews as well as furthering the temporal power of the Pope. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to use a country
7: as an example here because I was just checking it out the other day. I'm just going to talk about uh, Morocco, and I'm going to bring it up for this reason. For example, here in America, uh, we see a hidden agenda regarding how uh, the ecumenical movement works and basically how one day here, You're going to have to worship the way the Pope wants you or forget about it. Now, behind the agenda, we have things like Waco. We have other things going on that make it pretty difficult for a biblical American to exist here in this country. Uh, But you still can do it openly, so to speak, unquote. Now, you go to a country like Morocco and you find that, uh, boy, if you start uh, preaching Christianity there there are laws against it uh, and that is all over the muslim world now tell us about why it's in place this way i know i know you understand this quite well but you'll you'll find that christians can't uh, practice christianity in a muslim world but here in america we see that muslims are welcome in open arms i think it's to create some type of friction don't you
5: of course, it creates friction, but it also it also prevents the preaching of the true gospel to the Arab peoples. Because we have to remember that there are only two racial peoples in the Bible that have biblical promises to inherit. The racial Hebrew Jewish Israelites and the racial sons of Ishmael, which we know today as the Arabs. And so, therefore, the papacy seeks to do its best to keep the true gospel from going to the Arab peoples, for which reason it created Islam in the first place to kill out all the non-papal, Bible-believing Christians who who are Arabs in Arabia and then North Africa. And so they continue with this quest. They don't want to have the gospel there because if the gospel goes to the Arab people, they might begin to have prosperous civilizations and a middle class and a people then that would rise up and say, listen, the papacy has always been our historical enemy. Yeah, good point. And
7: I wanted to I wanted to mention this. Can you explain to us, from your research, uh, how the papacy created Islam? Uh, can you give us some historical facts? It's a huge subject, but just touch on some of the main points going back in history to lay a
5: foundation for what we're saying. According to the count and according to Exequiel Alberto Rivera, the Augustinians in North Africa tutored Muhammad. They taught him. And according to the count, the Quran was written in Rome. Muhammad never wrote that. He never received it in a vision. And so therefore, um, when you see this happening, then you can understand why Islam never persecuted the Augustinians, the North African Christians. Remember, Augustine was a pagan. The four, the four primary theologians for Roman Catholicism, one of them is considered, all of them considered the, some of the fathers of Roman Catholicism of the papacy, doctrinally. and the foremost is Augustine. Augustine hated the Jews. And so therefore, the Augustinians imbibed their hatred for Jews in a religion that they would created for Arabs, who are the natural enemies of the Jews, pursuant to the Bible. But the sons of Ishmael would always be uh, against the sons of Isaac, and so they fashioned a religion for the Arab people to fit this biblical controversy between the sons of Isaac and the sons of, uh, sons of Ishmael, and thus Islam never persecutes Roman Catholicism, in fact, Islam goes into Spain about the 8th century, and Islam goes into Spain, Portugal area, and it conquers the Visigoths, the Visigoths were non-Roman Catholic Christians. And after they used Islam to kill out the Visigoths or drive them over the Pyrenees into France, then the Vatican uses its military to drive the Muslims ultimately out of Spain. And by 1606, they're out. So we see many, many examples of Islam being used to destroy the enemies of the papacy. And why? Because Islam created it in North Africa by the Augustinians tutoring Muhammad, And one of Muhammad's wives had been a Roman Catholic
4: nun
7: Yeah, that's interesting when you look at his life, and now we're talking, what, in the 7th, 8th century now? 7th century. 7th century, okay. So, yeah, and when you start reading the Quran, you see so many similarities to Roman Catholicism, don't you? I mean, it's it's a warlike religion, exactly as the papacy.
5: It calls for the conversion of the infidel with the sword, just as Roman Catholicism calls for the conversion of the heretic with the sword. As Thomas Aquinas wrote in his Summa Theologica, and I have a quote in my book. They're identical. So now let's fast forward to nine
7: eleven, and you see, well, you see throughout... Uh, The 1960, you know, I'd like to talk about that for a moment, and we'll hit 9-11 because we've, we've in a sense, left it off the table on many radio shows, uh, connecting the dots between how terrorism was orchestrated by the Jesuits. We hear about 9-11, and there's still constantly information coming out about really what happened.
5: But, by by, by the the way, before before I forget, I put a recent post up on my website on Tim Russert. Okay. And that relates to him implying that 9-11 was an inside job on June 1st, 2008. 12 days later,
7: he's dead. Yeah, interesting. I was just talking about him with a friend the other day, too. Let's uh, let's hold that thought and maybe touch on him in the second half hour, but I wanted to get back. Uh, Many people don't realize the Jesuit roots in Iraq... And how they were kicked out of the country, I believe, in the late 1960s. I think we could start there, and then move our way into how terrorism has been orchestrated, and how uh, these organizations have been fomented by Western money uh, to create this controversy between Muslims and Christians. Now that's going on in the world. Go ahead. Start in the 60s with the Jesuits in in uh, Iraq.
5: Interesting. Okay, let me let me go a little bit before that, Greg, if okay. I can. Um. When Muhammad died, there became a schism between the Muslim people as to who would be his successor. The ones that chose the successor to be Ali were the ones that were called then the Shia Muslims. And so we have this schism after the death of Muhammad between the Sunnis and the Shia. And they are mortal enemies one toward another. The Sunnis hate them and regard them as infidels. And so the Shia now, because the Shia are also really the enemies of the papacy, because Sunni Islam was created by Rome. Sunni, uh, Shia Islam was not created by Rome. And so now we have this enemy of the papacy Mm -hmm. called Shia Islam. And even Suleiman the Magnificent fought against the Shia. Um, uh, Saladin fought against the Shia, according to the count. And so Shia are the target, because to have a unified Islam against the West, you have to neutralize the Shia peoples. Where do they live? They live in southern Lebanon. They live in Iraq. They live in Iran. They live in Afghanistan. And some of them live in, I believe, a portion of Somalia. That's all, it's only where the Shiites live. So, therefore, this crusade, this crusade with, uh, in 1960, over November in 1960, the Jesuits had a very lovely university in Baghdad called Baghdad University. I believe it was the New York Province, the Maryland Province, the New York Province that had established this Baghdad University in uh, Iraq for the purpose, of course, training its leaders, and its leaders would then be subject to the papacy.
4: Um, in 1969, the Shia of Iraq <laughs> expelled
5: the Jesuit order from their country. Now, that is what very important. Why did they do that? Because they are meddling in politics like they were, here? That's right, because they were meddling in their politics. So the Shia wouldn't put up with it. So they kicked them out. And some of the leaders. Uh, then we're, he went down in airplane crashes shortly after that. In 1971, the Jesuits bring the Ba'ath Party to power and put Saddam Hussein in power. And what does he do? He persecutes the Shia people of Iraq. He involves them in the Iraq-Iranian war so the Shia can mutually kill each other. And all of this is financed by the U.S. Jesuit-controlled uh, government, because if you read a tremendous book called, uh, uh, I think it's called Spider's Web, it's the illegal army of Iraq by Friedman. He shows you during the Reagan administration for eight years that his administration on both sides, Iraq and Iran, during the Iraq-Iranian war because they want to kill off all the Shia.
7: And you see some pictures that are still floating around of Donald Rumsfeld seeming very friendly with Saddam Hussein as they're shaking hands and wondering, you know, I'm wondering what they're talking about behind the scenes, but I guess we can fill in the, the gap here. Uh, they're probably, again, fomenting war there, correct? Absolutely. The Shia peoples of Iraq and
5: Iran have to be brought down in order to, organ- to completely unify Islam. It's just like you have to completely bring down all Protestant sects. It's like this heretic we heard about in the news broadcast. Uh, you have to bring down all Protestant sects and submit them to the Pope by the National Council of Churches, World Council of Churches. And you got to do the same thing with the Orthodox. you got to subject the Orthodox Christian Church to the primacy of the Bishop of Bishops in Rome. So they, they have the same principle applied to Islam. You must subject the Shia... To the Pope of Rome, and since they won't submit, we have to kill them, and then they will submit to our Sunni leaders, and then our Sunni leaders will lead the way in the crusade against the West. So right now, they are conducting a crusade against the Shia Muslims. We see this very same thing when uh, when Israel invades in two thousand six into southern Lebanon. Of course, Hezbollah started it, but Hezbollah is run by the Knights of Malta. And the Knights of Malta run in Hezbollah with their, with their hospital there in the border, according to the count in southern Lebanon. They then recruit all the young Shia men to fight in Hezbollah and then incite Israel to come and invade uh, southern Lebanon, which they never won, and kill the Shia people. So it's a war on the Shia of all fronts. I believe when they detonate Detroit, there's the largest Shia Muslim population in the United States in Detroit. They're going to go up in smoke. It's all a crusade now against the Shia.
7: You know, I want to talk about that, uh, what you just said about Detroit. But first, uh, just give us just a little bit of background. So we have the papacy creating Islam. How did this schism happen? Where did uh, Why did the Shia, uh, Shiites rebel against the papacy? What was the main reason there that you found out? As I
5: perceive it, the papacy being in control of Muhammad wanted to continue its absolute control over Islam after his death with his successor that um, succeeded him, that was a Sunni. I can't remember his name right now. And with this, with this uh, Ali laying claim to being the descendant of Muhammad, the Muslims who followed him, they became what is called Shia. And this now was totally out of control of the papacy. <laughs> papacy now is learning, learning, losing control of the sect called the Shia through Ali. So the Jesuits now in control of the Jesuit Papacy. Have to rid the, the Islam of this of this of this schism, so that Islam can be united for the purposes of the Papacy. And one of those purposes is to be used against North America. I think we, you know, looking at, well, okay, the Jesuits thrown
7: out of uh, Iraq, we have our uh, domestic and foreign policy being, we see the uh, ties between uh, Spellman back in the uh, Vietnam War, and we move our way into now this uh, war on terror after uh, communism falls, uh, and that is orchestrated as well. But just for, uh, uh, just a refresher course, people may not be able to get their mind around how, Uh, Our government, how the Jesuit order can create a terrorist organization that can work its way into America, do the damage they've done in 9-11, and then create this whole propaganda campaign that the people of Islam are all behind this so that they can whip up a war between the two. So tell us how this is funded how they can operate this way, how the Jesuit order really works behind the scenes so that when people uh, present this premise, they can back it up. Because most okay. people in America still believe uh, that uh, the Jesuits have nothing to do with nine eleven. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay,
5: uh, to begin with, we have to remember there weren't any Muslims on those airplanes. The airplanes were empty. Um, there's airplanes were guided into the buildings by the military-industrial complex of this country. As I've said for ten years now, George J. Tenet, Knight of Malta, the DCI at the time, Director of Central Intelligence, a Roman Catholic, trained by Jesuits at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, he was the mastermind of 9-11. So therefore, this Knight of Malta, George J. Tenet, his master at the time then was the head of the of the federal branch of the Knights of Malta which at the time was Edward Cardinal Egan Edward Cardinal Egan was the archbishop of New York City he's now been replaced by Timothy Dolan and so Edward Cardinal Egan was the was the Darth Vader was the overseer of the entire 9/11 scenario using his GCI George J Tenet just as Cardinal Spellman was the overseer of the assassination of JFK using his Knight of Malta DCI, John McCone. It's the same system, but with different players. Now, with this with this 9-11 that they brought about, they then uh, justified a crusade into Afghanistan in the following month. Uh, Afghanistan wait, yeah, Afghanistan was invaded on October 7th, 2001. October 7th is a very important day in history because it's on October 7th, 15, 15, uh, 1571, that the Battle of Lepanto was fought between the forces of Suleiman the Magnificent and the, the Holy Roman Emperor with his Knights of Malta and the Jesuits. And the Battle of Lepanto in 1571 is considered the most important sea battle in world history, second only to the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, when Octavian defeated Cleopatra's fleet and then went down to Egypt, killed her, and took over the kingdom. So this Battle of Lepanto was extremely important for the listeners to remember because on October 7th it took place, Suleiman was defeated, the Middle East was then was opened up to the Crusaders once again, and it's on this very same October 7th day that the U.S. invades Afghanistan. Hmm. So they start the Crusade of 7th, 2001, against the Shia of Afghanistan, primarily. So that's uh,
4: that's
5: that's kind of where it starts, and so now here we have it. And then the other thing I want to stress is that because the vast majority of white people in this country are ignorant as to these historical facts, they are successfully being herded into right-wing white Jesuit fascism. I just saw a guy emailed me a, a truck with a bumper sticker on it, and it has uh, the Twin Towers burning. He said, I learned all that I need to law, law, know No, on uh, 9-11, but I learned all I need to know on Islam about 9-11. And so, and there was a a redneck somewhere down in the south, somewhere, he had a Confederate flag, and he had had this painted on the back of it, and I thought, this is exactly what they're doing. They're inciting these people, these white people primarily, to unite under a fascist resistance and fight this crusade, because they refuse to believe that 9-11 was an inside job of this government. Exactly, and then if we start really
7: looking behind the scenes and looking at all the facts, that prove that uh we have to go one step farther, and then decide you know and try to uncover who was behind it and how they orchestrate these things and that's where it's very important to begin to look at the jesuit order behind the scenes and all of their shenanigans throughout the course of history seems to be uh forgotten by the american people and this is why they can get away with it uh you make a fact in your book vatican assassins uh that they've been kicked out of uh, over 80 countries in in world
5: history. And this is only since the uh, 1530s when they were formed, correct? From the 1540 to, what, about 1931, according to Jesuit uh, Thomas Campbell, who was the former president of Fordham University, he lists 83 countries, cities, and states that they had been expelled from since their creation. Hmm. But the other point I wanted to make was that... uh, The question is, well, what makes you think the Jesuit order did this if if it's Cardinal Egan and the Knights of Malta? The point of my book is that the Jesuits have been in complete control of the Jesuit of the papacy since no later than 1814 after their formal revival by a bull issued by Pope Paul VII. And in that bull, he gives them all their previous privileges and immunities. And in about 1886 or so, Pope Leo the Thirteenth was poisoned, and he was approached by a Jesuit and said, "Listen, you've been given a poison that we only have the antidote." And he said, "You will sign this bull, giving us all of our previous power back. And if you don't, you're going to die. If you do, we'll give you the antidote." And So Leo the Thirteenth signed the, signed the bull. He was given the antidote, and he lived. Interesting and so now we had to the
7: same, the same thing going on to you know one thing I wanted to mention regarding uh, Cardinal Spellman, uh, when I interviewed a New York police detective who was working on a pedophile problem, his name is Jean uh, uh, Jim Roting, he mentioned that uh, it was well known that Spellman was considered to be one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful man in America and uh, that is just carried on. guest is Eric John Phelps, author of Vatican Assassins. You can go to his website at vaticanassassins.org uh, You can buy that book if you uh, haven't, and I tell you, it's uh, it's well worth reading. A lot of facts in there that uh, kind of put the puzzle together because everybody wonders what's really going on in america what's happening behind the scenes well this is really what's happening and uh the real clue is that you don't hear about it in the mainstream media yes it's the things you don't hear about that really are causing the problems in america and if you can cut the root of the tree out you might get to the you might topple this uh, evil tree that's been growing here in this country uh we can talk about a number of things happening uh just today, we can look at the Gulf Coast. Uh, Eric, you mentioned uh, terrorism on the on the threshold here, maybe in Detroit. But I wanted to just finish this up by uh, talking about that recent flotilla, uh, that peace flotilla that was going to Gaza, boarded by Israelis, and then this uh, firefight began. Uh, how do you view that as uh, the spark that's going to start off? Uh, This huge conflict in the Middle East that's going to flow into this country? What's
5: your thoughts? Well, I think that's part of it, but I think the spark that's going to cause it is when Israel attacks Iran. Because that's going to happen. Um, I believe the purpose for this whole flotilla fiasco, remembering, of course, that the Arabs have no right to Gaza, they only have a right outside the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his physical descendants. And that doesn't include Gaza, that doesn't include the West Bank, and it doesn't include the Golan Heights. It's all Israeli, Jewish, Hebrew land. And they have no right to it whatsoever. So now... Uh, the, they're, they're, what they've done is they have created this agitation. It's the Pope's agitation. Remember, he's the one that's established Gaza. He's the one that's established West Bank. He's the one that wants to establish uh, uh, East Jerusalem for the Muslims. This is all from the papacy. Remembering the papacy always benefits from every dialectic, every conflict, every agitation that it creates. And uh, so what they're doing is is they are seeking to unite the Muslim world against Israel and against the U.S. And part of this unification involves the breaking away of Turkey out of the Turkey that was created by the Freemason and mass murderer uh, Ataturk in 1922. Ataturk did away with Sharia law. And Turkey, after it had killed approximately two million million Armenian non-papal Christians in the Armenian massacre, which Turkey denies to this day, by the way, uh, all killing them for the benefit of the papacy, because the papacy hates the the Orthodox Armenians, and Islam wielded the sword to kill them. So Turkey is being driven out of its uh, somewhat neutral position, as it had all the way through NATO, when it was the southern flank of NATO, and now through this Gulen movement, the Tula Gulen, uh, this man who is probably the most influential Muslim now in the world who has been, went into a voluntary exile in Pennsylvania here. Hmm. So you know the Maryland provincial is allowing this uh, Gulen leader to live here and he has a protected compound up near the Poconos somewhere. Now, what they're doing is, using this Gulen movement, they are driving Turkey into the real anti-Jew camp. Tur- Israel did a lot of business with Turkey. Yeah, and this
7: flotilla originated in Turkey, right? Out of Turkey, that's right. Yeah. And, the,
5: and the count tells me this is the Gulen movement. Well, this makes perfect sense, because the Gulen movement wants to unite Islam for the creation of the new caliphate in the Middle East, out of Baghdad, out of what? used to be the center for the Ottoman Empire. And so, what we have here is Turkey being pushed in this direction, to all the Turks are boycotting Israel, exactly what the Pope wants, and this will also be another reason for the Pope to say, well, Turkey, you're not going to get in the European Union. The papacy has never wanted Turkey in the European Union, and it will never be the only part of... Uh, Whatever was once Turkey was uh, southern Cyprus, which is Greek Orthodox, they're in the EU. But northern Cyprus, which is Turkish, which was taken from the Greeks in 1974 by Henry Killinger, is not in the EU. So this whole thing is to keep Turkey out of the EU. It is to unite Turkey on the side of the Islamic world that will be in league with Russia. Mm
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Now let's move over to the other borders
7: in Mexico, let's move over to Mexico and uh, talk about what's, uh, what's happening there in your recent research. How is that movement uh, also, the illegal alien situation, creating a weakness in that part of
5: our country, in the West? Okay, okay the, this is designed, this has been designed by the Jesuit order to to catholicize our southwestern border since 1876 and this is documented by richard w thompson in his great work the papacy and the civil power written in 1876 and so with this jesuit design of bringing all these lower class uh mexicans into the country Uh, They are being, the Jesuits in Mexico are making sure they're leaving, and the Jesuits here are making sure they're coming in. And the staging base for uh, coming into the U.S. is the Jesuit stronghold of Arizona. And I posted something about this recently. There's called the San Xavier um, Mission. Uh, so near Nogales. It's not too far from the Mexican border. And this is where I believe the Jesuits with their strongholds, set up by Eusebio Kino, who is the, considered to be the father of the cattle country. Uh, the Jesuits are orchestrating this huge invasion through Arizona, and it will not stop. In fact, they've now incited more of this through a good piece of legislation that was signed by the governor there. But the Jesuits control her, just like they control Arnold Schwarzenegger in California. The same Jesuit California provincial Control, controls the California governor, the Arizona governor, the Hawaiian governor, and I believe the uh, Nevada governor. He controls that particular region of his province. So what they've done is now they have brought in all these alien Catholic Mexican invaders, which are soldiers. They bring in their flag. They plant their flags at the post office, at the public schools, demanding this and that. They have no intention of being American. They want to reclaim claim, the Southwest, claiming that it was taken from them illegally. And this is part of the Mecha Aslan uh, uh, rhetoric. So with this now, they have got the agitation with the Mexicans. Now they've got the agitation with with the good bill that was passed by all the whites now being driven into their corner. And so now we have the perfect place now to have a race war. Now, when this race war starts, I maintain they're going to ignite the black-on-white race war. At the same time, they ignite the Latino-on-white race war. This will then drive all the whites to desperation. Adolf Hitler will come to power. NORTHCOM, NORAD, uh, Department of Homeland Security will spring into action. Blackwater will be with them, which is run by the Knights of Malta. And then they will come to the rescue and solve the problem, and here we'll have no constitution and be under martial law. And that's the purpose for the Mexican invasion. That's why Janet Napolitano doesn't want to stop. That's why George Bush didn't want to stop. That's why Barry Davis Obama didn't want to stop. It's absolutely necessary to bring America to fascist martial law to have this alien Mexican-Roman Catholic and even uh, is uh, Islamic invasion because there are many Muslims there too and they can use uh, Arizona
7: as a powder cake here by creating this type of strong legislation supposedly against illegal aliens.
5: Yeah, why didn't they do it 20 years ago? Yeah. Why did they do it 25 years ago when it was it's starting to happen? They waited until they have 40 million of them in the country. Now we'll pass this legislation. Now we can foment domestic insurrection and, and rebellion. And all the Mexicans you see, every last one of them is going to the concentration camps. That's why I tell you Mexicans... People, you need to leave this country. You need to get back to Mexico as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean,
7: uh, I wanted to ask you, what have you been? What's your research uh, centered on uh, in the last weeks or so? What's what's been on your mind lately, and what have you been talking about on your radio show a lot?
5: Um, I talked about uh, George Allen, who was the past governor of Virginia. He was also uh, a U.S. senator from Virginia. Uh, And what he did was, he was to be really the foremost Republican candidate against uh, Obama. Well, he was credible. He did many good things. But he was given an order. And that order was to call an Eastern Indian who was born in Virginia, to call him a macaca. Now, makaka is like using the term nigger or something like that to deliberately incite the listener, and to then, he would then come under attack. He used the term makaka twice, deliberately. When he used this term makaka, then everybody came out and said, what are you doing using this name? And then it turns out that his mother was, was living in North Africa, and she had learned this term because this was the term used for the black Congolese. during the days of uh, King Leopold II, and it was also a term used for East Indians that come here called the Macaca Effect, that the East Indians take jobs that rightfully should be Americans. So when he used this term, Macaca, twice on video, (laughs) that completely caused him to lose the U.S. Senate race with, um, I believe the man was uh, uh, Mr. Webb, Greg Webb. And so the Democrat won the U.S. Senate seat for Virginia, one of them, and that threw a majority Democratic vote in the Senate so that they could pass what Obama-Biden won. The second thing is he was to be the presidential nominee for the Republican Party. In 2006, in December, he withdraws because of this term that he used, and now he's not really fit to run. And that ensured that they would have that decrepit... Uh, loser John McCain that would ensure an Obama-Biden victory, at least in appearance. So, I maintain this George Allen, and he now has what's called the Friends of George Allen. You can Google it. And it has 300 of the most powerful men you ever want to see. It's got Bill, and by the way, Bill, Bill Gates is funding the Gula Movement. Mm. Uh it's got um it's got uh George W. Bush on there. It's got uh uh Carlucci, uh, Frank C. Carlucci the third, former DC, uh, former Deputy Director of Central Intelligence, Carlisle Group. It's got several billionaires, many senators, other big bankers. Uh, Verizon, the head of Verizon is an item multi, Bruce Babcock, I believe. It's got all these power brokers that are the friends of George Allen. What for? What for? Because I maintain George Allen, who is now some sort of an authority at the Reagan Memorial Library, that's that's where they nested him, they're waiting to bring him to power or somebody like him, waiting in the wings to then unite all the white people into their fascist movement. Because all of these agitations have been deliberately caused to bring some supreme fascist dictator to power, white fascist dictator to power. By the way, he's a Protestant, so we'll make him a Protestant. So we can't really trace it to Rome, right? And then once, then once he comes to power, then he'll implement all these Department of Homeland Security. Remembering, of course, that the Department of Homeland Security was created, it was, was designed by John C. Gannon. John C. Gannon is a knight of Malta. John C. Gannon was in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. John C. Gannon was an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. John C. Gannon's a Jesuit, and he created the Department of Homeland Security, which I call the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So this is what I see with this George Allen, and that was an article that I worked on, and then I just finished one on on, uh, Tim Russert yesterday. Yeah, I want to touch on Russert, uh,
7: but first just let me mention this. Uh, when you're doing your research out there, listeners, uh, start at Georgetown. Start looking at a guy named Edmund Walsh, or Father Edmund Walsh. And then uh, go to Eric's book and start uh, tying the uh, putting the dots together regarding all the people that have followed that man and the connections to them. you are going to be astounded. Uh, how powerful these people are behind the scenes and uh, how no one in America knows about it, and the news media doesn't want to cover it, and the reason is they protect Rome as well, and they protect the Knights of Malta because many of the
5: the top media people are involved in the same organizations, right, Eric? That's right. Henry Luce, the father of the Gannett newspapers and Time Life, he's a Knight of Malta. Cardinal Spellman's intimate friend. Remember, the press center of this country is Rockefeller Center, across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. The CIA is there. The CFR is there. And whatever comes out of that is run by the Knights of Malta and is facilitating the purposes of the papacy, which headquartered is headquartered at St. Patrick's Cathedral, where the Knights of Malta are headquartered. So that is how we understand that. Jesuit Edmund
3: Walsh, he himself was a Knight of Malta. Yeah.
5: So so they're organizing the press, and, and they're orchestrating everything, and anybody that gets in their way, like Tim Russell, who was trained by Jesuit at Canaceous High School in Buffalo, New York, he was trained by Jesuits at John Carroll University in Cleveland who was the personal uh, gopher, the, the, the helper, for Patrick Monaghan, that Jesuit, the uh, U.S. senator out of New York who was a Fordham uh, visiting lecturer, and he was also part of the cover-up in the JFK assassination. Uh, Tim Ressert was absolutely in the Jesuit order's back pocket. They made him and created him, but when he started to go against... The, the story of 9/11 and when he started to infer that was it was an inside job on June 1st, 2008, when he was uh, interviewing uh, McClellan, the Bush's uh, White House press secretary, uh, once, 12 days later he
7: was dead. Right, and let's fill in those uh, fill in those twelve days. Now we know that Russert also was one. Uh, he was a what? He was a Meet the Press Sunday broadcaster, right? He had a big show. I, I'm not sure if it was Meet the Press. It was one of those Sunday shows. Meet the Press. Yeah, and so he was a very high uh, profile figure in the media, working for NBC. Comes out of Jesuit University, has ties to Moynihan, like you said. Uh, and then begins to look into 9-11 and, and starts to get the, uh, those, those broadcasts out about the possibility of it being an inside job. But he also starts interviewing Bush and Kerry regarding their skull and bones connections.
4: <laughs> That's right.
7: And, uh, you know, we, and on this radio station, you hear his voice most every day is saying over and over again, uh, what does that mean for America? And Bush says, I have a, you know, whatever Bush says. Uh, So he then, after that occurs, uh, now he's talking about 9-11 as an inside job. He takes a trip to Rome, unbeknownst to many people. He was in Rome just prior to his heart attack. uh, Supposedly, I believe at his son's graduation or something, but fill in
5: the dots there for us. Yeah, it was a celebration for his son's graduation at from Boston College. <laughs> Jesuit Boston College, probably the, the second most powerful and largest Jesuit university in the country. And he was there for a celebration, and what does he do? He has an
3: audience with Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. He
5: leaves Rome, he comes back to the US, and his wife and his son stay in Rome. I find that intriguing. Yeah, I find that and very then, interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then not long after, he, he supposedly collapsed on the floor at NBC News there, which appears to me that he is mm-hmm. a cup, and that's pursuant to the Jesuit oath of the fourth found.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Someone gave him a cup of coffee, and that was his last cup of coffee. And uh, strange things, no autopsy, right? No autopsy? I have a whole list of anomalies on my site there for review. There's no aut- autopsy. There's no. We don't even know the doctor's name who gave the autopsy. <laughs> so it's a complete cover-up in his murder. And, uh, and and nobody's talking about it. And obviously the Jesuit hands in it because he attacked the Iraqi war. He didn't want the war in Iraq. He, 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 he mentioned or tried to uh, lead on with the idea that it was a inside job of 9-11. Remember, they got rid of Lou Dobbs. They fired him. They got rid of uh, Montel Williams because of his position on the Iraqi war. All these people that are against the Iraqi war and maintaining that uh, 9-11 is an inside job have no voice whatsoever in the national press, and some of them are relieved and others will be killed.
7: Right, and this shows you they'll kill their own because they created uh, they created Russert, then thought he was a loose cannon, they had to get rid of him, right?
5: That's right, just like Kennedy.
7: And then if you look at all the reports, they eulogize him as as if he was such a great man, and right. as if he was always, they, they start talking about his strong Catholic
5: roots and how he loved the papacy. Right. Uh, and the, and, the other right. thing, yeah, and the other thing now it just occurred to me is that if anybody starts to get on the thought that he was murdered, why, it was Skull and Bones that did it. Not Protestant operation. They did it. It wasn't the Jesuits mm-hmm. failing to realize that the Jesuit William F. Buckley was Skull and Bones and not a Malta and a host of other members of knighthoods.
7: Yeah, I mean, that opens up the door to, uh, we don't have to, in another show, we'll get into it again, the connection between Freemasonry and the papacy, and how they use Freemasonry as basically the Protestant arm in this country, just uh, in 30 seconds,
4: uh, how important is that? Very important, that'll open up a lot of understanding, like J. Edgar Hoover.